0: I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the Old Testament book of Obadiah. It's one of the lesser known books, but of no less significance uh, for what we find here. We are continuing in these weeks as we go through summer and into the early part of the fall with a series on uh, the minor prophets, uh, emphasizing the importance of returning lessons from the minor prophets. And today we're going to consider Obadiah and the triumphant kingdom. And we're going to read here in just a moment. I'm actually going to pick up reading in chapter one, uh, which is the only chapter in Obadiah and verse 15. And I'm going to go through the end of uh, the prophecy here. So if you want to find that, we'll read it here in just a moment. The name Obadiah means worshiper of Yahweh or servant of Yahweh. And Obadiah, the prophet, was given a vision by God, a supernatural vision. And I think one of the things that's sometimes challenging when we get to prophetic literature like this or more complex passages of Scripture that may be far removed from us, it's not an epistle to the church, it's not a specific directive to follow, but it's telling a story about something or uh, giving a word from God about what was going to take place in those days as well as in the future— is we wonder, how does this apply to our lives? How does this connect with us? And that's what we're going to try to learn as we work our way through these verses here in just a moment. As I've already mentioned, it is the shortest book uh, in the Old Testament. Uh, Twelve other men are called Obadiah in Scripture, but the author is unknown specifically. He emphasizes Jerusalem in a prophecy of judgment on a foreign nation, which is unique, I'll mention that here in just a moment. And that foreign nation is Edom. So it's likely that Obadiah was from somewhere near Jerusalem. Now, most people date the book somewhere around 840 BC. So that would make him the earliest of the prophets to write, uh, earlier than Joel and also a contemporary of Elisha. The majority of Obadiah pronounces judgment on the foreign nation of Edom, and it's a fairly simple outline as these verses progress. The first nine verses, uh, Edom is judged for its pride. Then verse 10 through verse 14, mentions and speaks of Edom exploiting Israel for their own purposes. And then verses 15 through 21 emphasizes what God is going to do as a result of that in judgment and uh, the future destiny of Israel. And it's within that future destiny that we find our hope and our encouragement and how this might apply to us as well. So the leading themes are pride in its results, accountability to God, and the things to come in the future. Now, Obadiah, interestingly, is one of only three prophets who pronounce judgment on other nations. Nahum and Habakkuk are the others. Edom was too weak on their own to invade Judah, and when Edom rebelled against King Jehoram of Judah, the Philistines and the Arabians invaded Jerusalem. And when God's people are opposed, those who are opposing them can expect judgment. God is not going to sit idly by while his plan is opposed, while his people are abused, basically. And the stages of Edom make for an important study. They were a nation that stood in their pride. They saw the destruction and the distress of Jerusalem with their own eyes. They refused to do anything about it to help the people. They gloated when Israel fell and they were guilty of wicked indifference. They also plundered some of the wealth and assisted the enemy because they weren't strong enough on their own. Now, who were these people, the Edomites? Well, the Edomites were the people descended from Esau. Remember Esau, the son of Isaac and Rebekah and the brother of Jacob? Esau was named Edom. This is a derivative from his name. It has something to do with uh, red, probably because he had red hair. Don't hold that against me. And Esau eventually settled in the area of Mount Seir and absorbed a people known as the Orites. When Israel came out of Egypt and wanted to pass through the land of the Edomites in order to enter into the promised land, the Edomites were a problem. They wouldn't let them. They they were troubled. They blocked them. They opposed Saul. They were conquered under David and Solomon. And then in the days of King Jehoshaphat of Judah, Edom joined with Moab and Ammon. So you've got this little coalition of wicked nations that are continually pushing back against God's people sometimes God's permitting it because of his judgment against them at other times they're simply progressing in their wickedness in order to defeat the people of God after the Edomites were driven out of their land uh, they migrated to the southern part of Israel and they became known as the Idumeans now much later on Herod the Great who was also connected to this group of people appeared on the scene you remember what Herod the Great did did Herod the Great tried to kill the infant Jesus in Bethlehem. And in that sense, the rebellion of the nation of Edom continued. So you've got these little connections that are going on, and they all have one thread. And that one thread is the pride of a people who did not trust in God and the pride of a people who wanted to attack the people of God for their own purposes. These people also joined in a revolt against Rome And they were eventually wiped out when Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD. They actually fought side by side, at least in part, with the Jews in the rebellion against Rome. uh, But they were crushed. Now, I think the primary focus here, as we think about the triumphant kingdom, is that there will one day be a restored Israel. And that restored Israel will possess the land of Edom and the mountains of Esau. Now, when is that going to take place? It's going to take place in the millennial kingdom. When will the millennial kingdom take place? It will take place after the return of Jesus. So you've got this thousand year millennial reign after the return of Jesus, the second coming, and then you have bookended on the other end of that, uh, the final judgment and eternity as we know it. And within this is the rule and the reign of Jesus, Uh, before the final judgment and the eternal state. Now, I want you to take it not only as a framework for the rule and the reign of Jesus in a broader kingdom sense, but I want us to think about the rule and the reign of Jesus in our lives. If God's word is true and his character is what the Bible describes it to be, and both are, then we owe him our allegiance. We owe him our worship we owe him our service and we recognize how he's working and how God has this timetable in history that is undeterred by anything that's going on politically it's undeterred by anything that's going on socially God is carrying out his plan and what God is doing as he carries out his plan is he is building a nation for himself building a, a people for himself a, a kingdom for himself of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And we're moving toward that vision and revelation where there will be people gathered around the throne of God from every part of the world, and they will have one united chorus. And that one united chorus will be, Worthy is the Lamb. And if the Lamb is worthy to be praised in revelation, then he's worthy to be praised right now in our lives as well. So for the sake of time, I want to pick up reading in Obadiah 1 and verse 15, and I'm going to read the second half of this prophecy. He says, for the day of the Lord is near. Now now remember, just as a parenthesis here, we've been addressing this issue of the day of the Lord. It's an Old Testament concept. It's something that Paul presented uh, prominently in his writing to Timothy This is an idea that has been told over and over again that there's a day of the Lord coming, and we need to be ready for it. So he says, the day of the Lord is near against all the nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. What you deserve will return on your own head. As you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and gulp down and be as though they had never been. But there will be a deliverance on Mount Zion, and it will be holy. The house of Jacob will dispossess those who dispossessed them. Then the house of Jacob will be a blazing fire, and the house of Joseph a burning flame. But the house of Esau will be stubble. Jacob will set them on fire and consume Edom. Therefore, no survivor will remain on the house of Esau, for the Lord has Now, I want you to make the connection here that when the Lord speaks, it always comes to pass. And the Lord speaks consistently with his plan, consistently with his character, and it is certain when he says something. Now, verse 19. People from the Negev will possess the hill country of Esau. Those from the Judean foothills will possess the land of the Philistines. They will possess the territories of Ephraim and Samaria While Benjamin will possess Gilead. The exiles of the Israelites who are are in Halah and who are among the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. As well as the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sephiroth will possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors will ascend Mount Zion to rule over the hill country of Esau. And the kingdom will be the Lord's. I want to show you in these few minutes that we have together... Four characteristics of the triumphant kingdom. And the first characteristic is this. In the triumphant kingdom, God's salvation will be evident. God's salvation will be evident. Now, we find this phrase here in verse 17. There will be deliverance on Mount Zion. The idea of deliverance is the idea of salvation. What God does for us is he delivers us from our sin and to the savior. He delivers us from hell and to heaven. And he works in our lives in his deliverance in the way that he transforms us. And there will be salvation upon Mount Zion, the holy hill where God sets his anointed king. Now there are a number of examples of deliverance or of salvation throughout the Bible. From very early on in the scripture, after sin entered into the world and the consequences of it came and all the chaos of it followed, God began to deliver his people and to make a promise of deliverance. I think about Noah being one of the most prominent stories of deliverance in the Old Testament. You remember Noah, the man who was a righteous man. He had three sons who were all married. The earth he lived in was corrupted in every way But Noah, because he was a just man, stood out from the crowd. And in an impure world, he was pure. In an unrighteous world, he was righteous. In a world that ignored God, Noah walked with God. And he stood alone, believing God, and he built the ark, and he did everything that God commanded him. Now, there's a whole lot that we can learn from Noah. But we can think about his story of deliverance, and we can apply that to our own lives, and we can realize that we are living in dark days as well. We are living in challenging times, and we've got a decision to make. Either we're going to follow Jesus, either we're going to obey the Word of God, we're going to exalt our Heavenly Father, or we're going to do it our own way. And when we obey God, as Noah did, and believe what God said, God works in a powerful way to deliver us, and Noah was delivered from the corruption of the world, and his family was as well. You may remember years ago; it's uh, waned in popularity in the last few years, uh, maybe for good reason. Uh, but Robert Fulghum wrote an essay in, entitled "All I Really Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten," and there were some uh, interesting maxims in there about uh, life and just some practical wisdom. But it was so popular that it actually spun off a, a, a number of derivatives from that. And there's one that's entitled, All I Need to Know I Learned from Noah's Ark. And maybe you've seen it, but it goes like this. Number one, don't miss the boat. Number two, remember that we're all in the same boat. Number three, plan ahead. It wasn't raining when Noah built the ark. Number four, stay fit because when you're 600 years old, somebody might ask you to do something Really big. Number five, don't listen to critics, just get on with the job that needs to be done. Number six, build your future on higher ground. Number seven, for safety's sake, travel in pairs. Number eight, speed isn't everything. The snails were on board with the cheetahs. Number nine, when you're stressed, float a while. Number ten, remember the ark was built by amateurs and the Titanic was built by professionals. And number 11, no matter the storm, when you are with God, there's always a rainbow waiting. Now I draw this parallel because Jesus draws the parallel as well of Noah in the days of Noah. He makes a direct comparison between the days of Noah and the days preceding his return to the earth. As it was then, so it shall be again. In fact, in Matthew chapter 24, in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus compares the days of Noah to the days before his return to the earth. So what does that say to us? It says to us we ought not be surprised. It says to us we ought not be caught off guard when we see the darkness and the corruption and the wickedness and the rebellion against God. We're to expect this because Jesus told us to expect it. And in those days, people were not concerned with divine judgment. Uh, Men and women did not believe and trust in God. And as a result of that, they suffered the consequences. They were eating and drinking and doing any number of things and they weren't ready. And it will be the same way when Jesus returns. People won't be ready. But I want you to know that the day of the Lord is coming just as sure as the flood came to Noah's generation. The trials and the troubles of God's people won't last because God will deliver them symbolizing salvation in the future. You remember the Apostle Paul compared Israel to the natural branches of a cultivated olive tree, and the Gentile believers to the branches of a wild olive tree. Some of the natural branches, Israel, were broken off, and some of the wild branches, the Gentiles, were grafted in, according to Romans chapter 11. The Gentiles have been made partakers of the promises and inheritance of the blessings of God's kingdom. And most of us are recipients of that Gentile blessing through faith in Jesus Christ. Listen to what Paul writes in Romans 11 and verse 25 and 26. He said, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you'll not be conceited. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion And he will turn godlessness away from Jacob. So in part, Israel's blindness is temporary until the fullness of the Gentiles had come in. And at that time, God will turn his attention once again. And God is not finished with his prophetic plan for his people. F.F. Bruce said, even as the apostasy of Israel did not extend to every last Jew, so the salvation of Israel will not extend to every last Jew. Paul is speaking of the mass of Jews when he says all Israel. All Israel is a recurring expression in Jewish literature where it need not mean every Jew without single exception, but Israel as a whole. Now here's a key question. When Israel is saved, how and why will they be saved? Only through explicit faith in Jesus as the Messiah. There is no other way of salvation. God has never had another way of salvation except through faith. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. We believe God, and we believe the truth of what Christ has done for us on the cross and his death, burial, and resurrection. And central to salvation is the grace and the mercy of God. Salvation has always been by faith, and it will always be by faith. Now, this sword of judgment that we find in Obadiah is displayed throughout the Bible, but it's also displayed with the scepter of mercy. So when we find judgment in the Bible, we also find mercy in the Bible. Remember, the sword of judgment fell upon Adam because of what they did in the garden, and then mercy. The sword of judgment fell in Egypt, and then mercy. The sword of judgment fell on the Son of God who bore our sins, who took upon himself the wrath of God, and then mercy fell upon sinners. The sword of judgment will fall on the earth in the end, but mercy will be upon the redeemed. And Israel was reminded that their survival was not because of their own merits. Their survival was not because of their own Efforts or anything good that was in them their survival and ultimately their salvation their deliverance Was because of the love of god that was extended to them Here's the parallel. It is the same for us We will not be delivered because of our goodness. We will not be delivered because we are inherently worthy our righteousness is as filthy rags we will be delivered because we have depended on God's plan for deliverance and specifically on the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So upon Mount Zion will be deliverance by divine providence, divine preservation, never ending all sufficient grace from all trouble, from all temptations, from all things that we could possibly encounter in the triumphant kingdom. God's salvation will be evident. But then there's a second characteristic. In the triumphant kingdom, God's sanctification will be evident for his people. You'll notice in verse 17, it says, And it will be holy, or there shall be holiness. Now, this is the core meaning of being set apart. That's what sanctification is. That's what holiness is. It's to be set apart unto God. And there will be sanctification to qualify and to prepare the children of Zion for deliverance. And the great design of the gospel, listen to me very carefully, the great design of the gospel is to plant and to promote holiness. Sometimes we think about the gospel only as something that's transactional in nature. We think about something that it, it takes place in a moment in time and then it's over with. We don't have to we don't have to worry about it anymore. Our our eternity is settled in heaven, so therefore that's the sum total of what it means. No, that's not true. That's not accurate biblically. It is true that our salvation is settled, that our home in heaven is certain, that our security in Christ is real, but it's the beginning of life with God. It's the beginning of our growth in holiness. And where there is salvation, there will be holiness. Let me say it to you another way. If there's a lack of holiness, or maybe even more importantly, if there's a lack of a desire for holiness, then that could in fact be a sign that there is no salvation that has taken part place. Holiness is an important link in the chain of blessedness, but we are not the source of our own Holiness. The deliverer is the Holy One, Jesus, the Lamb of God, the one who secured our salvation. So I think the sentence in Obadiah could read, upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance and there shall be a sanctuary set apart unto God, that Jesus himself is our sanctuary. Jesus himself is our hope. Jesus himself is the one who imputes the righteousness of God to us when we are justified. And Christ is presented in his first coming as the king. But what happened? Israel rejected him. Even his cross bore the inscription that he was the king of the Jews. But make no mistake about it, when he returns in the millennial kingdom, Christ will be exalted on his throne over all the earth as king. And I do not believe that this is a delayed recognition of his kingship. I think that even now, as he is seated at the right hand of God the Father, he is king and he is Lord over all. But I think when he returns, it will be evident to all that he is king and Lord over all. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And he will be presented as who he has eternally been. Now, the phrase millennial kingdom that I've used several times today refers to a future period when Christ will rule and reign over the earth for what I believe is a literal thousand years from the book of Revelation. It's referenced specifically in Revelation 20, but it's also alluded to uh, throughout prophecy. There are unconditional covenants that are connected to Israel that I personally believe biblically require a literal, physical return of Christ to establish that kingdom. I think replacement theology, which I do not hold to, teaches that the church uh, has replaced Israel in God's plan and that the prophecies of the Old Testament are now only fulfilled in the church. And I think specifically there are many things that have not yet unfolded that God is going to finish that he's already started. And in this, the prophecies in Scripture concerning the blessing and the restoration of Israel to the promised land uh, are an important part of that. Psalm 2 and verse 6 says, I have installed my king on Zion and on my holy mountain. So I want you to think about it this way. Here's the progression. God is holy. God's dwelling place is holy. God's word is holy. And if all that's true, and it is, God's people are to be holy. Would it not be contradictory if we believed that God is holy and we believed his dwelling place was holy and we believed his word was holy and then we didn't understand our need to be like Jesus? In the days of the millennium, there will be a personal holiness as well as a national holiness. Listen to what Isaiah says in Isaiah 35 and verse 8. And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. There will be peace. Spiritual life will flourish. Holiness results from a right relationship with God through faith in Christ. And what we need to understand practically is that our sanctification has three parts. The first part of our sanctification is positional sanctification in Christ. That's when we are justified, we are set apart in holiness for service to God. That's your position. But then the second part of it is progressive sanctification. This is where the rubber meets the road. This is where we're growing in Christ's likeness. This is why we talk about praying and reading your Bible and being around other Christians, and worshiping consistently, and serving God, and being a part of the community of faith, because you are growing in your faith, and you're progressively becoming more like Christ. And then your complete sanctification, which is the third part of it, will be when you're delivered from sin in the eternal presence of Christ. And the millennial kingdom of Jesus will lead up to the final judgment and the eternal state in heaven for all who have faith in Jesus. The word heaven is found 276 times in the New Testament. must be pretty important. I'm looking forward to it. And the apostle John was privileged to see and report on the heavenly city. He talked about the glory and the presence of God. He talked about that heavenly city being filled with costly stones and crystal clear jasper. He talks about the 12 gates and the 12 foundations and how paradise will be restored and the river of the water of life will flow freely and the tree of life will be there, yielding its fruit. And in eternity, we will never experience death. We will have prayed our last prayer and we will not experience sorrow. Crying and pain will be gone because sin will be absent. Oh, it's going to be a wonderful place. And in the triumphant kingdom, God's sanctification will be evident. And he's preparing us for something that is far greater in his presence. And then there's a third characteristic. In the triumphant kingdom, God's satisfaction will be evident. Look again now at the second part of verse 17. It says, the house of Jacob will dispossess those who dispossessed them. What's that talking about? It's talking about a promise of restoration that the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. And this refers to the house of Jacob and the people of Judah, the the remnant who had returned from exile. What was the crowning piece of their possession? The promised land. God promised it to them, the land that is theirs by right. Possessions refers to the fact that the land which traditionally belonged to a person's family, or in this case, to the whole people of Israel, would be realized. Most of the land had been taken by various peoples, and it was not in the possession of Israel at the time that Obadiah was written. So there's a a specific connection here, because he's making a promise, and he's saying, listen, something's going to happen in the future that is not true in the present. In the present, these nations, especially Edom, have come against The people of God, and they don't possess what they're going to possess in the future, but you can mark it down that they will by the plan of God. Now, here's what I think is envisioned here I think it's both retribution against Israel's enemies and reclamation of all that God had promised. It mentions the Negev, this is the desert region, uh, synonymous with the area around Beersheba and the lower portion of the Dead Sea. And it would take over the territory of Edom. Uh, the Shephelah is a narrow ridge of land between the coastal plain and the hill country that would expand in the, into the Philistine city-states. So, what he's doing is he's giving these these geographic markers. And he's saying, "Listen, what is not true now, you can mark it down. You you can put a stone out there because God will bring it to pass, and it's certain that He will." Ephraim and Samaria is the region that was conquered by the the Assyrians, and it will be reclaimed by the people of Judah. And finally, Gilead in the Transjordan, stretching from the lower Galilee uh, to the river, would once again be ruled by Benjamin, the tribal territory between Bethel and Jerusalem. So all of this is coming to a pinnacle, that in the final judgment on Edom, these opponents of God After they are defeated, shamed, and eventually destroyed, even their land will be occupied by people they hated. God will overcome. And most of the prophecies of Obadiah have occurred, but some will be totally fulfilled in the end times. And I believe any Edomites or any other foreign occupiers or interlopers who had pushed Israel out of the city and out of their territory... The Bible is telling us here, there's coming a day when they're going to be driven away. Now, I think we can also consider this here metaphorically, not just specifically about the nation of of Edom, which is what this is about, but we can consider metaphorically that the nation of Edom might also represent any opponent of God. So what's happening here is, is God is saying that he will overcome all enemies and he will fulfill his promise to his people. And in effect, all of Jerusalem, not just the temple area, will become a holy place where only righteous people, in, in the new Jerusalem especially, by reason of God's purity, will be entitled to dwell. Now let me pause just for a moment, because this is very important for you personally. Even if you don't get all the history and the, the pieces don't fit, of the puzzle don't fit together for you very well, I want you to hear this. Only those who are pure in God's sight, who are righteous in God's sight, will inhabit the new Jerusalem, will inhabit the heaven as it's been promised. And the only way that any of us can be certain of that is if our faith is in Jesus, who is the king of the kingdom. If our faith is in the one who is exalted over all things, the one who is eternally so, And we trust in him, and through his righteousness, we will be entitled to dwell in the presence of God forever. And this is the promise that scripture is pointing us to. Ephesians 1 and verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now mark this down. The whole of creation belongs to Christ. All that God has for us is possessed by faith in Christ. Christ is our treasure. Everything he possesses is already ours. And yet at times we live as though we have nothing when we have everything. Why would we live as though we were in spiritual poverty when God has given us everything that we need pertaining to life and godliness? He's given us the greatest treasure of all through his only son. And we have a heritage of joy joy that we can't fully see right now in the moment, but we know it's true and we know in the triumphant kingdom God's satisfaction will be evident. And then I want to show you a fourth and final characteristic. In the triumphant kingdom, God's strength will be evident. Look now at verse 18. Then the house of Jacob will be a blazing fire and the house of Joseph a burning flame. But the house of Esau will be stubble Jacob will set them on fire and consume Edom. Now, just a few verses before this, back in verse 9 and verse 10, Obadiah uses a military motif. And he describes the inhabitants of Edom that would be cut off. He describes how they will drink continually until it will be as though they never existed. And the fire and the flame metaphor is used to depict the divine destruction of Edom. Now, throughout Scripture, fire is one means of divine punishment, especially in the Old Testament. Fire and flame often symbolize the presence of a holy God. The house of Jacob will serve as God's fire, and the house of Joseph, Jacob's prominent son, will serve as God's torch or God's flame. And these parallel lines identify God's reunited people as an instrument of judgment on eat them and there'll be no survivors. God's judgment will be complete. There'll be nobody in all of history that God will turn a blind eye to and say, you know what? I'm just going to ignore their sin. I'm just going to ignore what that nation has done. I'm just going to ignore what those transgressions are. I'm just going to ignore their shortcomings. No, God will make all things right because God's character demands that God makes all things right. And when we get discouraged and we look at the darkness around us and the rebellion against God, we just need to come back and remember, God is Lord over all. And he will make things right according to his holy character. And I believe that the ultimate decisive victory is the death of Christ on the cross, followed by his resurrection and his exaltation. So as Christians, we claim that victory through the cross we live lives of discipleship. We live lives that have, should have at least a courageous testimony. We share in Christ's victory. And we know that the promise will be complete. He walks that out just a little bit more in verse 19 as he's talking about some of the specifics of what will take place. In the triumphant kingdom, God's strength will be evident. But now I want to look again at verse 21, and I'm going to close. It says in verse 21, saviors will ascend Mount Zion to rule over the hill country of Esau and the kingdom will be the Lord's. Again, explicit reference to the millennial kingdom of the end times. Mount Zion is a metaphor for the city of Jerusalem. In the end times, Israel will be restored to the promised land. Obadiah sees the near term Remember this present-future aspect of prophecy. In fact, that's one of the most important things if you're going to read Old Testament prophecy, is if you can understand the present-future nature of what you're reading, it will help you put into context and understand what's going on. And that's definitely what's happening here. He sees the near term. He sees the midterm. The midterm's us. That's regarding our day. But he also sees the long term, where the end goal is return and restoration. This is an example, once again, of looking forward to what God is going to do in the future. So, church, this is why we pray, Father, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Make no mistake about it. The kingdom of God is central to the mission of Jesus. And God's kingdom perfectly reflects his character and his values. And Jesus came and established that kingdom so the kingdom of God is here now, but it is not yet fully what it will be. And we get to participate. This is why we obey the Great Commission. This is why we follow the Word of God. This is why we gather together as the people of God, because we are kingdom citizens, and we want to be good citizens of the kingdom that Jesus has secured for us we get to be a part of God's family. How much greater joy could there be that that we, people like us, that are undeserving, we get to be a part of of God's family, but also a part of God's plan. And God is working that plan out for the ages. We say, Lord, here we are. Use us however you see fit. And however you do it, bring glory to your great name. Let's bow our heads together for a moment as we pray and come toward a close of... service today. Pastor Eric is going to come just in a moment and he's going to sing with us as we close out. But I want to ask you a couple questions. First of all, are you a citizen of the kingdom of God? So how can I know? Have you repented of your sins and believed on the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation? If you haven't, you can today. You can enter in by faith. In fact, that's the only way to enter in. There'll be nobody in heaven that didn't enter by faith. If you don't know him, I want to encourage you to trust in him today. Maybe you're discouraged and you're caught up with the news headlines and everything that's going on in the world and it's weighing you down and you're wondering what's coming next. Would you fix your eyes on Jesus and trust in him? Don't get pulled away by all of that, but know that God is on his throne and he's working out his plan for the ages. Father, we love you. We're grateful to be called your children. We don't deserve it, but we thank you. We love you. We thank you that you are our treasure. May we be a faithful people in all that we do. Thank you for the message of Obadiah, a a rather obscure message, but yet a very important message. And I pray as we continue to learn from these minor prophets that we would learn several things. Lord, we would learn more about your character. We would understand more about your plan for the ages, and we can see how we fit into that, even if it's just as a small part, and that we'd be blessed to do that. So, Lord, use this time of conclusion and response, however you see fit. And if there are steps of faith that need to be taken or responses that need to be made, I pray that people would uh, turn to you, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.